Father, I pray that you would bless us now as we come to your word uh, to hear you speak to us through your son Jesus, not just about this life, but about life eternal. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Ben Franklin once uh, famously said that um, there's only two things for certain in the world. You probably know it. Death and taxes. Those certainly are two things that we can be certain of, no doubt. Although many people um, are entirely uncertain as to what happens next. Now, now I'm not talking about taxes. We know what's going to happen after the taxes. There's going to be government waste. We, we get that. We know what's going to happen there. But I'm thinking the death part of the thing. Um, what happens after death? And when I ask the question, what happens one minute after you die, I'm thinking not even 60 seconds. We're not talking about um, what happens a few minutes later or an hour, like instantly. The, the very moment that this life, life in this world comes to an end, what happens? What happens the moment that you die? Uh, and that largely depends, how you answer that question largely depends on your worldview, right? Uh, if you're an atheistic naturalist, the answer is fairly simple. You decompose. That's it. That's, you put a period right there. But if you believe that human beings have a soul uh, that continues to exist post-mortem, well, then you get a very different answer. But how would you answer it? What happens the moment that we die? And Jesus gives us an answer to that question here in Luke 16. From verse 19 uh, to the end of the chapter, we find Jesus' famous parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And in this parable, Jesus gives us a great deal of insight into the question of what happens when a person dies. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I I, want to try and give you some context uh, that led to Jesus giving this parable. You, you need to understand this in the context of Luke 16 more broadly in order to be able to understand why Jesus even mentions it at this point to begin with. And then I just simply want to walk through the parable. I just want to unpack it. Now, we need to pay close attention to it. This is a, this is a jam-packed story that if, if we're not paying careful attention, we're going to miss important elements of it. But then what I want to do is just draw out some lessons, some things Jesus is using this parable Uh, to teach us about this life and especially life after death. So let's jump around and let's start with just the context here and let's kind of refresh uh, our memories on what Jesus is doing here in Luke 16. Throughout this chapter, Jesus has been uh, addressing the issue of worldliness. That is, he's been calling us to turn from our fixation on the things of this world so that we can then turn to Christ and treasure him and treasure the things of the world to come. Indeed, that we would so treasure life in the age to come that we would use the stuff of this world for the sake of that next world. And that was the point of Jesus' first parable in Luke 16, if you remember. And remember how he concluded that. At the end of that parable, in verse 13, Jesus says this, No one can serve two masters, for he'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, not only mammon, just stuff 
transient, temporal stuff in this world. And then notice what Jesus does in the very next verse. Um, he, he gave that to his disciples, but the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, who were all, always opposed to Jesus, respond. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard these things and they ridiculed him. They say, you see that link there? They were, they were lovers of money. And he just got done with uh, a whole parable on money. About how we shouldn't love and treasure it. And here are the Pharisees loving those things, certainly more than Christ. So they ridicule him for it. And then he goes on from verses 15 to 18 to rebuke them. And, he, and what is he rebuking them for? If you remember, he's rebuking them for their love of, of earthly treasures, temporal treasures. Um, he rebukes them for their self-justification. Remember how they were declaring themselves to be righteous. And he rebukes them for that. And, and, and fundamentally, the rejection of the Bible. These people who, of all people, should have known what the Bible called them to, pointed them to, should have recognized the Savior that came, um, rejects him because they fundamentally rejected Scripture. And so Jesus rebukes them for that. And, and then he continues that response here at the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 19. Look at verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he goes on. And just compare verse 19 to verse 1. You see, he begins the same way. There was a rich man who, and then it goes on. So the, the whole chapter is dedicated to that theme. And we're going to see this, this rich man, he's a lover of money. Um, he's bent on self-justification. <clears throat> he doesn't see his need to repent. And he fundamentally rejects the authority of Scripture in his life. So Jesus is doing, just like he did at the end of the previous chapter, at the, at the end of chapter 15 with the parable of the prodigal son, he, he takes the Pharisees and he makes them a character in the story, personifies them, as it were, so that they can see themselves. And so that's what he's doing here. And so you, you see the theme from beginning to end here in chapter 16. This is what this parable is doing. He is calling us away from treasuring the things of this life so that we might treasure him and the things of the life to come. So, so how does the parable serve to do that? Well, well, two ways. Number one, it shows us the, the reality and the nature of the life that is to come. This life is not all that there is. And then second, he shows us the inextricable connection, the link between this life and the next. What we do, what we decide, what we do with this life has eternal implications for the life to come. So that, that's the main thing Jesus wants to impress upon us with this final parable. And, and as we mentioned uh, a few weeks ago, it's just important to remember that we need to keep the main things the main things, uh, the, the, the plain things the main things. We, we know what this parable is doing. Parables aren't meant to be picked apart and detail, and everything corresponds to something else. It doesn't do that. So I, I think we, we go wrong if we try to make this parable do that. We kind of get into some kooky things, perhaps. But just keep the main things clear. What is he doing? He's calling us away from treasuring the things of this world so that we might treasure him and the things of the world to come. And he confronts us with the nature and the reality of that life to come. And so that we could see the link between what we choose and what we do now and what happens for eternity future. That's the context in which he gives this parable. 
But let's, let's turn now to the parable itself. The first thing we see in this parable is a rich man. You've got uh, a rich man and the rich man's circumstances in life. He, he's introduced in the parable in terms of his wealth and in terms of his very lavish lifestyle. Look at verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted scrumptiously every day. Now, his name isn't given here. It's just a title, uh, just a rich man. And he's said to be clothed in purple. That was a very expensive material, a very expensive dye to make things purple in the first century. In fact, the word translated the fine linen there in verse 19 probably refers to his undergarments. So you imagine the, the guy today who only wears expensive Italian suits and only the finest Duluth Trading Company underwear. This is, this is, this is the guy that we're talking about here, right? Very, very wealthy, very lavish. And he eats just as good as he dresses. You see that? He holds these extravagant feasts for himself. And not just occasionally, but on a daily basis. And look at the house he lives in. We're told he's got gates at his house, verse 20. Uh, the word there for gates typically used to describe the entrances to temples or palaces or even a city. So you've got the mental image there of this guy. Now, by way of a very stark contrast, we're introduced to the other man in the story. In his circumstances, he's introduced in terms of his poverty and his miserable lifestyle. Verse 20 and 21, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Don't look at him. He's, he's physically sick, got sores all over him. He's probably disabled. You notice he, he didn't walk up and lay down. He was laid at the gate of the rich man's property. Probably wasn't able to get there himself. He's probably crippled in some way. Somebody had to bring him. And he apparently he didn't even have the ability to, to remove himself from the gate when the dogs came and began licking his sores. You've got to understand this is not a, a good thing. All right, that's going to, an open sore, you don't let your dog lick that, right? You're going to get an infection. And there's this whole sense of uncleanness for people who encounter dogs like this. He couldn't move out of the way. He doesn't even have enough money to feed himself. He'd give anything if he could just have the scraps. The scraps of food left over from the rich man's table. Those were typically given to the dogs, by the way, which means... The dogs had it better than he did. So that's Lazarus. That's the other guy in this story. He's got no money. He's got no home. He's got no food, no health. No one here to help him. Certainly not the rich man. About the only thing he has in this story is a name. And that name is Lazarus. Now you've got to understand, this is very unusual for Jesus to do this. He doesn't typically give names to his characters in his parables, but he does this time. Here Jesus gives him a name, and for that reason, I think this is a significant name. The, the, the name Lazarus means one whom God helps. And, and, and you notice the rich man doesn't get a name. 
He goes nameless. He's just the rich man. His name is providing even, even more contrast with the rich man. Whereas Lazarus is characterized as one whom God helps, the rich man is categorized as one who helps himself. And certainly one whom God doesn't help. And that becomes plain uh, when we look at what happens next. Verse 22, both men die. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abram's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham and far off and Lazarus at his side. So the story doesn't end at death. Both men continue on in life after death, but in two very different places or conditions. There's a great reversal in this parable. Watch what happens. Upon death, Lazarus enters heaven. He enters paradise. That's what Abraham's bosom is referring to. It's a, it's a Jewish reference to paradise, to heaven. He enters a place of rest and joy and comfort and peace and satisfaction and wholeness which is in stark contrast to the rich man. Upon his death, he enters hell. And the word used here is Hades. This is not a different place than hell. I think it's the same circumstance, the same situation. The ESV even translates the Greek word Hades as hell from time to time. And you can see that based upon the description of it. It's a place of torment. It's a place of anguish. There's, there's flame. You know, he, he asks, if I could just have a single drop of water. He is completely cut off from, not just from the comforts of heaven, but, but any of the comforts he experienced in this life on earth. This is, this is conscious torment and anguish. And then we're, we're given this interaction between the rich man and Abraham. He calls out to Abram for relief, and Abram says, no. No. He calls out to Abram to, to warn his family of the impending danger that they face of being in hell with him. Abraham says, no, again. But just look a little closer. Notice some things about the interaction. Notice the rich man never speaks to Lazarus. Did you catch that? He continues to treat Lazarus as inferior. He tells Abraham to send Lazarus to him like he's, like he's his waiter. You know, have him bring me something to drink. He tells Abraham to send Lazarus as an errand boy, as a messenger, to go warn his family. He, he, he never addresses Lazarus. He never repents with Lazarus. He never asks Lazarus for forgiveness, for treating him without compassion on earth. He just continues to treat him like dirt. Even in hell, that's how he treats Lazarus. He never repents of anything else either, does he? Uh, yeah, he wants mercy. Everybody in hell is going to want mercy. 
Nobody wants to be there. It's anguish. It's, you'd do anything to get out of it except repent. He's not asking for mercy because he's seen the error of his ways. He just wants relief and he thinks he deserves it. Even in hell, he is trying to justify himself. He's trying to declare himself righteous and deserving of Abram's favor. In fact, he even argues with Abraham here, doesn't he? But Abraham's response is absolute. The answer is still no. And it's no for two reasons. Number one, the gap between heaven and hell is unbridgeable. Look at what he says. Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able to. And none may cross from there to us. This is an unbridgeable gap between heaven and hell. There's no movement here. And besides that, I mean, his family, even if somebody did rise from the dead and go take them the message of warning to repent and trust in their Messiah, they're not going to listen. Why not? Because they've already been warned. And Abraham says, they've got the, the scriptures. Right? They, they hear God speaking in his word, calling them to repent and to turn to their Messiah. And they don't listen to that. They're not going to listen to me or anybody else who goes. And, and, and the rich man is a perfect illustration of this. He had the scriptures in his life too. He's called a child of Abraham here. He's, he's a Jew. He would have had access to the scriptures. He probably went to church. He heard it preached. And he didn't listen to it. He didn't repent. And he's in hell and he's still not repenting. He's still not listening to the prophets and to Moses. He's still rejecting the offer of God's grace. The same would be true for his family or anybody else who won't listen to God speak in his word. Not even if someone rose from the dead and traveled back and called them to repent. Don't miss uh, the stinging rebuke Jesus is giving to his pharisaical hearers when he says that. Remember there was another Lazarus that Jesus did raise from the dead? How did the Pharisees respond to that? They wanted to kill him. Which I think is hilarious, by the way, that you know he's already beaten death once. You know, what's he got to fear? By the way, there's another who's going to rise from the dead. They're not going to listen to him either. Because they're the ones that kill him. And Jesus is saying, if you don't listen to what God says to you in this word, even if I rise from the dead, it won't make any difference. Until there's a heart change, nothing's going to change. And that's where the parable ends. Just, just a period, end of story. I think what Jesus is doing is he's letting that land pretty hard on those Pharisees who are ridiculing him and rejecting him. But what does it mean as we look at it? What is Jesus teaching us here? What is he using this story to teach us? Well, just, just briefly, I want to just give you a few lessons from this parable about what it teaches us about not just this life, but life in the age to come. 
So I'm going to give you five, and these will be fairly brief, some of them. And the first lesson is just very obvious, and it's this. Everybody's going to die. Everyone will die. Unless Jesus comes back in your lifetime, you're going to die. That's true of the righteous. It's true of the unrighteous. Because the wages of sin is death, and it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. And, but notice here, when we die, we don't take any of the stuff with us. The things of this world, all, all, all the food, the clothing, the homes, uh, the health, the achievements, the status, it's gone. You don't take any of it with you. All of the stuff that we work so hard for in this life, all those temporal, transient things, they don't go with us. You know, I, I, the, the image that I have is, is of, the, uh, of the kid who spends all of his time uh, on his day at the beach building this elaborate sand structure, you know, the sand castle, or maybe digging the huge hole. Why do they do holes? It's just how deep can we get, you know? And they, this massive achievement at the end of the day. And then what happens when the tide comes in? It's just completely gone. That's, that's what the things of this world are just the sandcastle washed away by the tides of eternity. And here's how Ecclesiastes puts it. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. You go out of this world just with what you came in with it. Which is why Jesus is calling us here not to trust and treasure and invest everything in this life for the sake of this life, but to use these things for the sake of the next. To use the temporal things for the eternal things. Everybody's going to die, and we're not going to take any of this stuff with us. I think that's an important lesson Jesus has for us here. Second, Everyone will live on after death in one of two places, one of two conditions. Immediately following death, we will enter heaven or hell where we will await a final resurrection and judgment on the last day. So even here, this is not the final state. This is is temporary. But those are the only two options. Heaven or hell. There's not a third option. The Bible does not teach purgatory. There's no third place we go in limbo for a while till we get from one place to... There's two options. And immediately upon death, we're going to enter one of those two places, one of those two conditions. And we will await the final day of judgment, which is why this is sometimes called the intermediate state, a state of existence in between this life and the resurrection, the state in which our souls live on, awaiting the resurrection of our bodies. But, but even in this intermediate state, we're still in a conscious existence. Just, just look at how it's described. It's either a conscious existence in the nearer presence of Christ with joy and peace, and comfort, satisfaction, blessedness, 
wholeness, holiness, or its conscious existence apart from his presence, under his divine punishment in unspeakable torment and anguish. You've got to understand, when the Bible describes these two conditions, it's, it's really grasping at whatever words it can get to describe something of what that's going to be like. I don't think we can adequately describe what that's going to be like, even, even with these words. Just as heaven is greater than anything we could possibly imagine. You understand the same is true of hell. It is worse than anything we could possibly imagine. And, and at the moment of death, everyone enters one of those two places, one of those two states. Third, that place, that condition after death is unalterable. It is unalterable. It cannot be changed. It is absolutely fixed. And notice something in verse 26. You see that unbridgeable gap between heaven and hell? Notice something. It applies both ways. Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Do you catch that? It's both ways. The fixedness of heaven is parallel to the fixedness of hell. As sure as no one in heaven will ever end up in hell. That's how sure no one in hell will ever end up in heaven. Jesus was not a universalist. Universalism teaches that the place that we call hell will, will eventually be totally emptied. It would be like that restaurant when the light cuts off and there's nobody there anymore because everybody's left. That's what universalism teaches. Given enough time, people will eventually see the light. They'll eventually come to their senses. They'll eventually cross over from hell to heaven. And Jesus teaches just the opposite. The gap between heaven and hell is absolutely unbridgeable. There is no second chance. Do you hear that? This is it. The moment we die, it's it. It is fixed and totally unchangeable. And part of the reason for that is what Jesus gives us in our fourth lesson. No one in hell ever turns to God. No one in hell ever turns to God, just as no one in heaven ever turns from God. Sometimes we think, well, well surely if somebody saw what hell is really like, and there are books like that, right? You know, eight minutes in hell or whatever, right? Those, those are not real. Don't, don't read those things. If we think, well, if somebody could just see the reality of hell, that would be enough to awaken their consciences and they would turn and they would cry out in repentance to God for forgiveness. No, they won't. 
No one in hell ever repents. Ever. For eternity future. Never. The rich man never repents. And neither will anybody else in hell. And what Jesus is saying is, if someone refuses to repent in this life, not even hell will lead them to repentance in the next. You know, this is not the only place we find this. At the end of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, Revelation, in chapter 6, there's this description of, of how people respond to God's wrath, his punishment. Just, just listen to this. And listen to the absence of repentance in the face of God's judgment. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. You hear what's going on? People in hell don't repent when they come face to face with God's punishment. They only dig in their heels and they grow in their recalcitrance and their hardness against God and their anger and hatred and resentment toward God. This says they would rather mountains fall on them and crush them than to turn in repentance and faith to Jesus. If someone refuses to repent in this life, they are not going to repent in the next. Which means their, their sin and their rebellion against God never ends. It just keeps going on and on and on, which is one of the reasons God's judgment continues going on and on and on forever. One last lesson, then we're done, and it's this. The only reason those in heaven are in heaven is because of the grace of their Savior. The only reason those who go to heaven are going to be in heaven is because of the grace of their Savior. And, and, and it's clear why the rich man is in hell. Right? You see his sin, you see his self-justification, you see his refusal to repent. But what, what about Lazarus? Why is he in heaven? It's not because he was poor. Right? This is not teaching salvation by poverty. Well, if you want to get into heaven, just, just become uh, poor. That's not what he's saying. Not everybody who's poor goes to heaven. Not everybody who's rich goes to hell. So why does Lazarus get to go to heaven? I think the answer that this parable hints at is, is for this reason. His help and his justification came from God, not from himself. And we already mentioned how Lazarus is the only one who gets a name in this parable. Lazarus' name means one whom God helps. 
as opposed to one who helps themselves. And did you catch, by the way, Lazarus never speaks in the parable? Never says a word. Who speaks for Lazarus? Who defends Lazarus? Who comes to his rescue? It's God. God speaks for him. He speaks on his behalf. Lazarus doesn't need to speak. He doesn't need to justify himself like the rich man. You know why? Because God did it for him. God already declared him righteous. Which comes not by looking to yourself and to your righteousness, but by looking away from yourself and looking to God's righteousness, looking to him and to his grace. I think that's what Jesus has been driving at throughout this whole chapter. He's been calling us away from Self-justification. He's been calling us to treasure Christ, to trust Christ, to believe his word. And I think that's what Lazarus represents in this parable. The difference between the rich man and Lazarus is simply this. It's the gospel. It's Christ. The one the scriptures point to. Uh, the one we turn to by faith, the one who took hell on the cross for his people so that they might receive heaven with him. That is why believers receive heaven. The moment that this life ends, The reason they get Christ in the life to come is because they've got him now. That's how Jesus would answer the question, what happens one minute after you die? The moment this life ends, what happens? That's what happens. But I hope you understand that this parable isn't here just to give us an answer It's also meant to ask us a question. And the question, it's the same question actually. And the question is this. That's how Jesus would answer it. But what about you? How would you answer that question for yourself? What do you believe will happen to you the moment that you die? Where are you going to be? What's it going to be like? And do you have any kind of certainty about that? I mean, is it a coin toss? Is it a leap in the dark? Is it a best guess? You don't know when you're going to die. You know you will. Could be today. Could be before you pull out of the parking lot. Where are you going to be? Jesus didn't come into this world so that we would uh, have to guess at eternally significant questions like this. He came into this world so that we would know it. And we would be able to know it because we know him. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus is the one who on the cross took the hell that you deserved so that you get the heaven that you don't? 
He's pleading with you from his word. Heed his warnings. Receive his offer. And know for certain what will happen one minute after you leave this world. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for reminding us again this morning of the need to heed the warnings of your word and to receive the promises of it. If we put our faith in you, if we receive you for who you are and for what you have done for us in your life, death, and resurrection for us, we know for certain that we will be fixed in heaven, enjoying you for eternity. Help us to pursue this life to that end. Help us to use the things of this world to spread that good news that people on their way to hell would by your grace and for your glory turn at the hearing of the gospel and join you treasuring and worshiping you forever in the life to come. And we pray this in your name.